This is March of History. Welcome back. I am your host, Trevor Furness. And your co-host, Brandon Furness. And we're back today with the March of History podcast. We left off with Julius Caesar winning Pontifex Maximus, getting his family out of the slums and into a mansion. And we're going to pick up back up today, slightly different spot, but same year, a story that's not entirely focused on Caesar, but it is one that has a big influence on the Republic and one that has a big influence on Caesar, or at least one that he plays a big part in. Work for you, Brandon? Sounds good to me. And I also say we're having some audio issues. We basically have no idea what we're doing when it comes to recording things. So we've been using Skype. I don't know if it's the best audio quality. We've been told to try Zoom. We just recorded the first 10 minutes of the podcast on Zoom, and we both sounded like robots. We were having some audio issues. Yeah, yeah. So we tried Skype again, and we're having the same issues. So we're going to try to record this episode, and hopefully the audio quality is there. And if it's not, we apologize. We're learning as we go. We are not audio technicians, either of us. So this is our first time recording a podcast, and we're learning as we go. But, uh, yeah, so getting back to the actual history at hand. So today we're going to be talking about a man named Lucius Sergius Catalina, better known in history as Catiline, and what becomes known as the Catiline Conspiracy. Now, all these events we're going to talk about, they go down in the year 63 BC. Why do I mention that year? Because that's the same year that Julius Caesar becomes Pontifex Maximus, and all the events of the last episode that we just talked about happened. It's a jam-packed year, so we got to split it into multiple episodes. Now, Catiline, I think, I think it'll work well, Brennan, if we say who he is and then say how it relates to Caesar, right? Yeah, I think that makes sense. We develop some context, not just the co-relationship between Caesar and Catiline, but figure out who Catiline is first, and then it, it'll be a lot more interesting to see how he then meshes with Caesar. I agree. I like it. So Catiline was a patrician, like Caesar, like Sola, and like both of them, his family had fallen into decline. Now, at one point, they had obviously been, you know, or obviously been something or some kind of family on top. You know, they were patricians. They were, you know, going back to the founding of Rome, but they had hit rough times. Now, as early, relatively early, as uh, Catiline's grandfather, they had had some prominence. His grandfather was a celebrated war hero in the war against Hannibal. He fought with a iron prosthetic hand, became, you know, quite famous in that war. But Catiline's family, as a patrician, measures success in consulships attained. And they had not attained a consulship in 400 years which is an astounding amount of time for your family to keep track of the family tree and know that you last achieved a consulship 400 years ago. You know, we live in the United States. That's older than our country. Yeah, I mean, for that matter, it's almost as old as the, the Republic itself. So, I mean, like yeah. you had, yes, yeah, so that, that must have been one of the first consulships to, for them to even have. Probably, it must have been very early on and then never since then. But the family's still around and... Catiline is determined to renew his family's fortunes, to bring it up to where he believes it should be, a lot like Caesar, and there's a lot of similarities between these guys. And you'll see what I left off last time, last episode, was saying that we're going to talk about somebody who could almost be 
a dark, shadowy reflection of what Caesar's life could have been if one of his gambles failed, well, that person is Catiline. Very similar in many ways, and there's definitely differences between them, but what happens to Catiline could, in some alternate reality, have happened to Caesar as well. So by that, would you say that Catiline is on a similar level of talent and, and background? Well, background, we've already said that he's a, a patrician, and would you say he's similar in level, or at least similar in the ways that he's talented? I'll say Catiline, yeah, he's considered to be very talented, very charismatic, physically brave and strong, mentally tough. He's a lot of good things. Is he Caesar's level? I don't think so, because I don't think he would have put himself in situations that he gets put in if he was Caesar's level. But then again, no, I don't think anybody is, you know, at least not alive during this time. And so he served, I don't know if we're getting to this yet, but he served under Sola, right? Yeah, yeah. So he Sorry. was, well, he really, he served under Pompey's father, along with Marcus Tullius Cicero, who we talked about, the new man, the guy who's in the same town as Marius and was the great orator and is considered to be maybe one of the, the greatest orators of all time, maybe the greatest. Personally, one of my favorite characters from ancient Rome. Yeah, he, he's considered to be the great moderate and, you know, was unbelievable in his rhetorical abilities and in his writings and his influence on, on the Republic. So him, Pompey, and Catiline all served in Pompey Strabo's army, which was Pompey Magnus, the Pompey that we know as father. And he kind of laid low when Marius was in charge in Cinna, who was, you'll remember, Caesar's father-in-law, you know, the first wife that he had that died. She was the daughter of Cinna. Catalina kind of laid low during that time. And he was married to Marius' niece. But then when Sola comes in, he fully declares for Sola and is on Sola's side. And when Sola takes over, one of the things that he does because this is one of the odd things. He's a, he's a populare, Catiline, definitely. But he's friends with Catullus, who you'll remember is the arch-conservative. He's the guy that ran against Caesar for the Pontifex Maximus, the head priest of Rome position. And he's also the one that had the standoff with Caesar in front of the big crowd about the icons of Marius and whether they could stay or not. So him and Caesar don't like each other. And in many ways... Catiline is like a shadier version of Caesar, and yet him and Catullus are friends. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of picturing like this dystopian, sullen type of uh, version of Caesar. Where I mean, because like, you started off saying that it's kind of like a, a version of you know what could have happened to Caesar if things went bad, and then that with you know he was a, he was a sullen, not a, a follower of Marius. So kind of, it just feels like that whole kind of uh, Sulla setting where everything's kind of. <laughs> you know, a bit on edge and, and uh, yeah. unnerving. That's a good point. No, he, he is a lot like that. You know, he was considered to be very edgy. He was friends with, like, with the edgy set in Rome. He was friends with, they said basically anytime things became disreputable or people became disreputable, that's where you would find Catiline, even mm -hmm. though he's got this illustrious name. But how does he remain friends with Catullus despite a reputation like that? Well, him and Catullus, when... Sulla marched on Rome, formed a rather odd bond. You see, Catiline was married to this, to again, Marius's niece, and I guess her brother, who was Catiline's brother in law, had prosecuted Catullus's 
father. And I don't know if he's put to death or just exiled, I forget which, but Catullus had a bone to pick with the guy. And for whatever reason, Catiline was happy to help him pick that bone. So once Ola takes over, they basically capture this guy. I don't even, I don't forget the guy's name, actually. He's not important to history, but he's the man responsible for Catullus' father's death. They capture him and help punish the man for killing Catullus' father. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they whip the man through the streets of Rome for all to see until he gets to the tomb of Catullus' father. And there they take rods and they break his, his arms and his legs and they mutilate his face, which I haven't heard specifically what they did in any of the readings. They just say they mutilated his face. And then after that, they decapitate him. So Catullus does this to avenge and appease the memory of his father why the heck does Catiline do this? You know, what, what's his reason for all this absurd violence? Yeah, it almost sounds like some kind of bizarre conspiracy theory that you might. I mean, they're they're from different parties, different generations, and then you know you hear about this guy being involved in you know helping Catullus uh, murder some guy who killed his father. This seems like a you know, very bizarre story. It is very bizarre, and they were bizarre friends and. Nobody's quite. Sh- I haven't. I mean, I've read a bunch of different sources, and nobody's really explained why these guys were friends, or why they were working together to kill this guy, or why Catullus even needed Catiline for that. Maybe Catiline lured him in because he's his brother-in-law. I don't know. But after Catiline chops off the guy's head, his brother-in-law's head, he then parades it through the streets of Rome so that everybody can see, and he lays the head at Sola's feet. <laughs> So, I mean, it, like, he really does belong to this, like, dystopian dark world. You know, he has a very shady reputation in Rome. You know, a very ominous reputation. And it's not for no reason. When you start chopping off heads and parading them through the streets, you're going to get a bad reputation. Yeah, who, who, wouldn't, <laughs> who wouldn't be scared, yeah. Yeah. And that's not where Catiline's seedy reputation ends. I mean, he's got a whole list of things throughout his career where he's constantly being prosecuted for this or that. And just to name a few of them, let me just hop back for one second and say that even among the prescriptions, you know, where they were chopping people's heads off and they were hunting people down at the behest of Sola, what Catiline did was considered to be particularly brutal and just kind of out of the ordinary and out of control. Even among the times of the prescriptions, they felt that way. So that just shows he, he went too far, people, people felt. But in addition to that, Catiline throughout his career was charged with sacrilege, with murder, with adultery. And he was charged with these things again and again throughout his career. Supposedly, he became obsessed at one point with a beautiful woman named Aurelia Orestilla. And Sallust, who's a historian and, and actually served in Caesar's army later, had written about her and his histories of this whole period. He says about her, quote, in whom no good man ever praised anything but her appearance. So, quote, in whom no good man ever praised anything but her appearance. Essentially yeah, quite saying, the roast. <laughs> <laughs> an ancient roast, that she was beautiful, but a pretty awful person outside of that. Now, this Aurelia, and as far as we know, she's not related to Caesar's mother, who's also named Aurelia. But this woman, Aurelia, apparently refused to marry him because he had a teenage son and did not want to share the house with his teenage son. 
why I can only imagine that she wanted her, you know, if she's going to marry him, the heir to, you know, their family to be her own kid and not somebody else's kid. And so the rumor goes then that Catiline, who, you know, wanted to marry her that bad, and she said, you know, not if you have that son, went ahead and killed his own son to make room for her to marry him and, and move in. Yeah, that's pretty wild. So is that like a rumor, something that was put out, you know, as propaganda, or do you, is that a, a true story? It's a rumor and propaganda, but it's one that would seem to be in somewhat rooted in truth because you can't just make up the death of somebody's son like that. You know, people would be like, that didn't happen. Maybe his son got sick at around the same time and died, and people thought it was just way too convenient that this woman told him not while you had that son, and then the son dies. They never yeah. quite explain it, but people did believe it, you know, and they felt that he was right. a shady enough character that this was a believable story, which right, yeah, that alone that says a lot. Yeah, the fact that he's not beyond suspicion that he'd kill his own son for this this woman that no one likes anyway. <laughs> yeah. Not, yeah. It means he probably doesn't have a good reputation. And here's the thing. Roman fathers could kill their sons. It, it was legal. They could kill almost any family member if they chose to. But it, it rarely ever happened because I, I remember reading one book, somebody described it as, you know, you would no sooner kill your son than cut off your own arm. You know, it just doesn't make sense for most families to kill your own son, you know, but you were allowed to. Uh, I'm sure by this point in the Republic, it was shocking any time anybody did that. You know, maybe it was more of a, an old time thing, but it still was allowed. You know, much of Roman law is custom, not written law. Now, Catiline, you know, his, his, his rap sheet doesn't end there. So he was accused of seducing a Vestal Virgin. So the Vestal Virgins were a group of women that, as the name suggests, were meant to stay virgins, and they were the keeper of the eternal flame of Rome. And there were all sorts of terrible penalties for them if they were you know, to lose that virginity, they would be buried alive because their blood was not allowed to be shed, and they couldn't leave the city of Rome, I believe. So they would bury them alive. And then I was reading that at one point they said that, well, actually, that can't be done because, I don't know, they couldn't be buried inside the city limits. So what they would do is they would lead him into some kind of dark dungeon cave, and then they would bury the entrance and leave her with a little bit of food. So they basically told her, hey, go sit in that room. And then she had her food and then dies of natural causes, a.k.a. starvation. <laughs> so that, there was all sorts of penalties for the Vestal Virgins if they ever gave up their virginity. And Catiline was accused of seducing a Vestal Virgin. And there would have been huge penalties for him as well. It was considered treason against the state of Rome because this would anger the gods against the city. Huh, so, yeah, I, I wonder, I guess this is just another instance of him wanting to do what's not allowed. Or... Yeah. He, no, I think that's a great point. I think he just likes doing things that shock and appall people and that are very edgy. Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, I guess Caesar gets accused of doing some things that are you know, not okay, but usually it's a it's a means to an end versus for Catalina it seems to be the end itself. He just That's a very good observation. Like, I hadn't thought about it. Immoral that. or whatever whatever things. Yeah. Because I'll say Caesar, like you said, he takes a lot of these gambles, a lot of wild risks and wild behavior, but it always seems to be very calculated. And yes, it's a gamble, but he believes, you know, he's got good chances in the gamble and that the reward is worth it. Catiline seems to be taking gambles for the sake of gambling. You know, like maybe he just can't help himself or just not as good a gambler as Caesar was. And it, actually, if this is the right case I'm remembering, this 
accusation that he seduced a Vestal Virgin, Crassus was also accused of seducing the same Vestal Virgin. (laughs) (laughs) But But here's the thing. He's the only person in Rome that could credibly have claimed that the reason why he was hanging around this Vestal Virgin was that he was trying to steal, or not steal, but like basically convince her to sell off some of her family's property to him at some knockdown price. And everybody in Rome said, oh, okay, that makes sense. And they believed it, and that got him out of any suspicion. But he's the only guy in Rome that everybody would have been like, oh, okay, that makes perfect sense that Crest was trying to steal her property and not her virginity. Yeah, and I, I, and I kind of find myself believing it right now, too, and even just from knowing what I know from the the history that I've learned about him. I, I yeah, kind of, seems you know, I think he was innocent in that, in that sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So his greed actually proved his innocence there. And so, I mean, what you can say about Catalan is he had a, a sinister reputation, but you combine that with stylishness and with approachability and with charisma and intelligence that same historian Salas said that he was strong of mind and body and capable of withstanding fatigue, hunger, cold, to a point that seemed astonishing or unbelievable. Uh, he had great charm and commanded fierce loyalty in his friends and supporters, and that part's very similar to Caesar. Both those parts are similar to Caesar, except for the you know, sinister part. Now, also like Caesar, Catiline runs up huge debts. And he keeps a lot, well, I mean, this part's a little bit different. He keeps a lot of seedy company from every part of society. Now, you've got to remember that history in Rome is written by the upper classes. So when they say he keeps seedy company, he, he could just be a friend of the people, right? He's not afraid to hang out with the common man. But I don't know, because, you know, Caesar wasn't afraid to, hang, to you know, spend time with the common people, but he wasn't accused of being seedy ever. So it, it seems that Catiline was doing it in a slightly different way. Right, yeah, I mean, I mean, you could be, like, someone who, I don't know, today helps out at, like, a, maybe this is different, but, like, a, a soup kitchen or something, and you're not going to be accused of someone who's going around, like, uh, with with gang members and stuff or something like that. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, That's yeah. A- <laughs> I, I don't know. You lost me on that one, <laughs> but the soup kitchen gang reference, I don't know. I'm lost, but I'll say... Definitely an air of sinisterness clung to him. And another point I should make is he focused a lot of his efforts and his charisma and his charm on the youth of Rome. They said that he would buy, depending on the, the young man's age and the young man's inclinations, he would buy for him either whores or horses or dogs, whatever made the young man happy. And he spent a lot of these debts lavishing on friends and acquaintances and and kind of brainwashing the youth to be in some kind of almost quasi cult with him. Maybe not a cult, maybe that's too strong of a word, but definitely this kind of subculture within the culture of Rome that he was the charismatic leader of and taking in impressionable youths within the city, all while showing up at Senate meetings and being a senator. Very odd combination. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Did he have any. I wonder, like, what is his background that he's kind of exhibiting this sort of, like, deliberately immoral behavior, like, or, like, edgy behavior? Did he, like, was his father killed or something, or was he, was it, did he grow up in some kind of unstable uh, environment? 
That's a good question. I have no idea, actually. I don't know anything about his birth. I do know that he came from poor background, like as in wealth, he didn't have much money. I don't know much beyond that about him. Maybe I could find that out. I don't know, but I should probably dig through some some deep uh, ancient history tomes. For, for our purposes now, I don't know. But I will say, getting back to you know the narrative, because we do have a lot to talk about, yeah. Catiline, he goes. He, he's governor in North Africa at one point. He comes back to Rome, and of course, he's accused by a delegation from that North African province of basically exploiting the people of the province. And he's brought the trial about it. And at this point, Cicero offers to represent Catiline because he knows that Catiline's planning to run for consulship the next year. And he says, oh, hey, maybe I can do one. Cicero was also planning to run for consulship. And he thought, well, maybe I can do Catiline a solid and represent him. Cicero is a king of the law courts. You know, he's a phenomenal orator. He made his name in the law courts. And then, you know, having done one solid for Catiline, he and Catiline can run together for consulship. Catiline being the respectable pedigree of being a patrician and Cicero being the new man and you know, having a lot of talent and a lot more likability than Catiline, it would be a good, maybe a good combination. But Catiline, being the snobby patrician that he is, dismisses Cicero out of hand and basically says he wants none of his help. Really? And so this is just because Cicero is not a Roman. He's a, some kind of uh, Italian from some other village. Exactly, yeah. A lot of snobbery in Rome. So that's, that's interesting, though, because, I mean, we were just saying how... Catalan hangs out with all these kind of shady people, but then someone who's you know not shady but lower class or not at least not I, Roman, he he has nothing to do with. I wonder if Cicero were a bit more shady if Catalan would have. I think that's himself. exactly it. I think it has less to do with the fact that he was a new man and more to do with the fact with that Cicero is just like he's such a moderate <laughs> and so unedgy that a guy like Catalan probably has looked at him in disgust. And wanted nothing to do with him. Right. So he gets snubbed, but of course, Catalan gets off on the trial and gets acquitted like he always is because he has a bunch of influential friends. You know, Catullus will come speak for him. Other influential senators will come speak for him because he is this patrician and, you know, he, he is a good politicker. Now, the consulship for 63 BC comes up. Well, I should say this is 64 BC and they're running for 63 BC. And Cicero declares his candidateship, and so does Catiline, and he says he's going to run in conjunction with a man named Antonius Hybrida, who is the great, or no, I think just the grandson of the famous orator named Antonius, but he's of equally bad reputation to Catiline, and he's described as thuggish, but... Caesar and Crassus both support Catiline's campaign because you know Crassus is probably lending him a lot of money, and he is a populare, and you can imagine he's the perfect person for somebody like Crassus to take advantage of. You know, somebody that's young, talented, and needs a lot of money. So that's the kind of investment that Crassus makes. I also say for Cicero's part, running for the consulship is a bigger deal than you might realize because there hadn't been a new man elected to the consulship in a generation. And by new man, we mean that nobody in your family before has been consul. That makes you you know, a new man, a novus homo. And 
he's running to be console, and it's it's incredibly unlikely. And he almost benefits from the race significantly, or, or the the people he's racing against significantly. Wait, so new man means that you've never had someone in your family be console? Not even it's not even a new man to Rome, but just. That you're yeah. No one in your well, family. Oh, okay. It really means that nobody in your family has any distinctions. Maybe you don't have to necessarily be console before, but nobody okay. has any distinction. Like you have no ancestors to point to that have done great deeds in Rome. So Tom Holland in his book Rubicon, I want to give you an idea of this Antonius Hybrida guy. So he says, snobbery formed the basis of his entire campaign, meaning Catiline's entire campaign. It was conducted in open alliance with another nobleman, Antonius Hybrida a man so debauched and thuggish that it was hard to believe that he was the son of Cicero's great hero, Marcus Antonius. Confronted by two such disreputable candidates, the aristocracy took a deep breath, held their nose, and voted for the least bad option. And that least bad option in this case was Cicero. So Cicero really did benefit from the fact that he had these two terrible people running against him. You know, any other field, the aristocracy would never have voted for the new man. But even though you know these guys had old families and Catalines and patrician, even that wasn't enough to overcome how bad the aristocracy felt that they were. You know, like these guys are just bad characters. We do not want them in office. We'd rather vote for Cicero, a new man, which they hated, than to vote for Catiline and Hybrida. But Hybrida does win, <laughs> and he gets in second. So Cicero wins handily, and Hybrida kind of squeaks by, and Catiline gets third, and. In Roman consulship, there's only two of them, so Thur gets nothing. Okay. Yeah, I, I watched some some video that was saying that what the first the the person that gets the most votes starts off the first month running things, and what it alternates after that. Exactly, and and there's prestige to being the person that gets that first month, and they decide who gets that first month by who gets the most votes. So there's a senior and a junior consul based on that. The senior consul gets the most votes, the junior consul the second most. And so when January comes around and the new year starts, the senior consul gets to go first. And so in this case, Cicero was the, the senior consul? Exactly. We talked a lot about how Caesar does these gambles. Every time he runs for office, he needs to keep on winning. Otherwise, his creditors are going to yank the rug out from under him and the whole thing comes tumbling down. And Caesar does that throughout his entire career with office now, and later he'll do it on an even grander scale. But Catiline's doing the same thing, except here's the difference. Catiline just lost. And for the first time in his career, he lost. So now he's two years behind. He had that. So when he first came back to North Africa, he wanted to run for consulship. They wouldn't let him because he was being prosecuted for what he did in North Africa. And now he, he's able to run, and he loses to a new man, Cicero, which is a huge embarrassment for a patrician of his status. But what's worse is that his creditors aren't going to extend him money forever. You know, They're getting angry, and his credit's only going to last maybe one more year. So he desperately needs to do something. Otherwise, you know, he's headed into exile, like Caesar said on his way to the Pontifex Maximus election. You know, I will either return Pontifex Maximus or I won't return at all. If he doesn't do something soon, he you know he's getting very desperate. So, do we have any past precedent for what Crassus does if someone doesn't pay their debts? I don't know actually. So, Crassus did a lot of things behind the scenes. You know, he was the king of doing shady things behind the scenes, and yet never seemed to have the dirt 
cling to him. You know, he was like the one guy that could do a lot of behind the scenes shady things, which the Romans looked down upon and still show his face and, you know, get a lot of credit in the forum and, and not have that shadiness and, and dirt cling to him. How he did that. I don't know. He's kind of unique in that way. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder how, I guess maybe what if he just had so many resources that he could just always make it seem like it was someone else to me or someone else, but, but yeah, who knows? Yeah. And I do know that everybody in Rome feared Crassus. They all respected and feared him. Now, like I said, Catalan's getting desperate, so he's got to find some way to salvage the situation. And so what he does is he starts boasting about his debts to everybody. And this is a big risk because you don't, I mean, a lot of politics in Rome is what Caesar's doing. Act as if. Act as if you're wealthy. Act as if you're successful. And he's doing the opposite. He's, he's bragging about how much his debts are and how screwed over he is, basically. And you can actually be thrown out of the Senate, you know, if you appear to be financially, you know, as bad as he says he is. So it's a big risk. But the reason he's trying to do this is that there are a lot of people suffering from similar debts all throughout Italy and Rome itself, not for political reasons, you know, which is what he brought his money for, but for various other reasons. People have been caught in these usurers, these, uh, you know, shady lenders that you know, gave them money that they knew they couldn't pay back, and now they basically become indentured servants to these people. So a lot of Italy is chafing under these unfair lending practices and you know all this debt that they have. And so Catalan starts spreading the word to the poor masses that, hey, I'm like you guys. I'm also in this huge debt. I'm also in a lot of trouble. So who better to lead you and represent you than somebody who is bold, like myself, and who also has all the same issues as you. And he's saying this publicly to the people, to poor people and, and the downtrodden at meetings. This is dangerous talking, as, as the Senate would see it. You know, this is talking of uh, almost revolution. There's also a lot of barren farmland that was given to the veterans of Sola. And these guys are they're used to the fat days of civil war where, you know, they got tons of money and were able to steal everything that they wanted. And now they spent, I don't know, a a few decades or a decade trying to work farms that are just unusable and you know they're desperate for something new in life and and Catalan sending out agents into the countryside to recruit these guys you know these guys are military people they know how to fight they know how to organize and he's you know recruiting them all to his cause but what exactly is his cause it's kind of mysterious right nobody quite knows so at, at this point it's just the uh... People do, they see Catalines up to something, but they they don't know what it is. Yeah, maybe some people see it, some don't. Nobody's paying too much attention. I mean, he's a patrician, you know. They know he's in dire straits. Nobody really believes that he's doing anything radical, right? Yeah. But Cicero, who's consul this whole year, 63 BC, that same year that Caesar runs for Pontifex Maximus, he basically has been keeping an eye on Catalines. He doesn't trust him. He thinks he's up to something. And... He calls him out at a Senate meeting, and Cicero is the king of character assassination. He knew how to really get somebody's goad in person by just making fun of them, by cracking jokes. He was extremely witty, and he could really get the best of somebody. And he does this in a meeting of the Senate in front of everybody to Catiline. And, you know, he starts asking, well, what, have you, what have you been doing? You know, what, what are you up to? And all these seedy establishments. And Catiline responds very ominously. He says, quote, 
I can see two bodies, one thin with a large head, one huge but headless. Is it really so terrible if I offer myself to the body lacking the head? Huh. So, so do we know what that means or is that? We do. And the senators definitely knew what it meant. And they were not amused. So essentially what it means is he goes, I can see two bodies, one thin with a large head. That's the Senate. It's got this big head, but it really doesn't have much power behind what it says. And then he goes, and one huge but headless. That's the people. They have immense power, but they have nobody to lead them. Is it really so terrible if I offer myself to the body lacking a head? If I offer myself as the champion and leader of the downtrodden and poor that do not have somebody to think and lead for them? But the Senate saw this as a metaphor yeah, for revolution. They, yeah, they did not like this at all. You know, it was veiled talk of revolution and treason, but it wasn't thinly veiled. It wasn't veiled enough. You know, <laughs> everybody knew exactly what he meant. And this comment lost him a lot of support during the next election. Because he decides Catalina to run again for consulship because it's, it's his only way out. If he gets to consulship, then he gets to proconsulship in one of the provinces. He can exploit all the people there, make a ton of money with a war or just by exploiting the province, pay off all of his debts. If he doesn't win the consulship again, nobody's going to bet on him a third time, right? So he decides to run a second time. And so this is still in 63 BC that they're running for the consulship that will start in 62, right? And Cicero, as the current senior consul, oversees the election. Now, leading up to this election, Cicero passes some stricter anti-bribery laws that exile somebody for 10 years if they're found guilty. But despite this, this does nothing to quell the rampant bribery by all candidates that goes on. And there's some sources that say that Catiline started this rampant bribery. We don't know, but everybody was participating in it. And it became so bad that Cato is reported to have said, and I have a quote here from Adrian Goldsworthy, Cato announced that he would prosecute whoever won the election on the basis that no one could have prevailed in such a contest honestly. He did make exception for his brother-in-law, Salinas. While this may seem hypocritical to the modern eye, the Roman aristocracy placed huge importance on family connections and fully understood. So Cato basically said, whoever wins, I'm going to prosecute them because the only way they went, they won was through bribery. Unless it's my brother-in-law, in which case I won't prosecute him. Really, huh? And so is he, is he prosecuting under this law that Cicero passed or is this just? Yeah, he is. That and maybe other laws, I'm, I'm not exactly sure. But, you know, Cato sees himself as the defender of the Republic, and he finds these good people are undermining the Republic. And so, again, Catiline's losing more friends, more prestigious friends by, you know, this rampant bribery that's just so obvious. And Cicero feels that something's up, that, you know, Catiline's up to something, but he doesn't quite know what. So he suspends the elections until September. And when the elections are held in September, Cicero shows up with some concealed breastplate armor beneath his toga, but it's like not that well concealed. It's, it's pretty, he makes it obvious that everybody sees that he's wearing this breastplate and that he fears for his life. And he, the, he asks the Senate and the Senate votes for him a, a bodyguard of equites, which is the equestrian or knight class to guard him during the elections. And he makes sure that all the voters see that, you know, the consul fears for his own life. 
And that's because Catalyn's plotting. And this is equally, I guess, you know, a bit of propaganda to make Catalyn look bad that he has to, the console has to fear for his life, right? Oh, it is. And many throughout this whole process will say that Catalyn was innocent, that Cicero pushed him into all this. You know, like really? if you keep, well, yeah, if you keep on pushing somebody into the corner like that, when everybody thinks that they're guilty, then they almost have to do what you're saying that they're doing because it's their only chance at that point. Hmm. But I don't know. I think Catalan's sketchy enough of a guy that Cicero may have forced his hand, but I think he had a shady hand to begin with, you know? Yeah, yeah. But Catalan loses the election again. And this is in September, and many of his large debts are due November 13th. And at that point, he'd essentially be bankrupt. You know, probably chased out of Rome by his creditors and exiled forever if he's lucky. He gambled big like Caesar, and he bet on himself like Caesar, but he was not Caesar. And his bets weren't as calculated, and, you know, betting on yourself only works if you are that good. And Catalan was good, but maybe he wasn't that good. And he just made wrong decisions in, in involving himself with shady people. So, as desperate as Catalan had been, you can imagine he becomes doubly desperate now because now, you know, at least before there was an option to escape all of his issues by getting the consulship. Now there's no option, right? There's no legitimate path forward for Catiline. So Catiline goes and he sends an agent, an old centurion of Sola's, out to many of the veterans and the rural poor in Etruria. And he starts recruiting troops for an army. He's doing this all kind of secretly. And you got to remember, there's no telephones. There's no quick ways of communication. You can actually recruit a secret army not far from Rome and have nobody know about it. But Catiline's not stupid, and he, and he knows that the, in this army can take time to raise. So what he does is he remains in Rome and goes about his normal business as if nothing's happening. You know, let there be no suspicion of me or my comrades. I'm sitting here. I'm doing all the normal things. And this combined with the fact that many of the conspirators and followers of Catiline, you know, that some of the Cicero or other people were saying were his, you know, fellow conspirators, were considered to be like talentless hacks in Rome, you know, people that were jokes. So nobody was afraid of this conspiracy because Catalyze down and out. All the people you're saying that he's colluding with are a bunch of like talentless hacks. You know, we don't fear these people. And it made the whole thing into a joke. It was not taken seriously. I wonder if there's any intention there. If I mean, I don't know who, who created the rumors that said, oh, Catalan's dealing with these people who are hacks. But I, I wonder if as part of it, like you had just said before, he's staying in Rome trying to not raise suspicion. If he tried to, you know, not also be seen with anyone of any significance so that people didn't fear that he was doing anything that would be big enough to, to affect them. It could be. But I think in the end we see who was on his side. And okay. it was not anybody of – well, it's, it's, it's tough to actually tell. So, But the people that they were whispering about that, you know, were supposed to be in on the plot with him – Nobody took seriously, and nobody really saw any evidence of it. So they felt, some people began to think that it was Cicero just trying to drum up hype, uh, or trying to drum up a crisis for himself during his consulship so that he could be the hero 
and write all about how great he had done, right? Because he loves to write about his deeds afterwards. So people accuse Cicero of fear-mongering and, and creating a crisis that he himself could then solve. So Cicero needs evidence. You know, he can't just keep saying that Catiline's up to something and he's doing something shady. Well, what is he doing and how is he doing it and how do you know any of this? So he puts together a network of spies that can keep track of the plot and try to give him information. And what happens is he gets finally his key witness from these spies. And that person is Quintus Curious. Not a name we've mentioned before, not one you really have to know. All the sources said he was, just a, he was pretty stupid. <laughs> and basically, really? this Quintus Curious had a mistress. Her name was Fulvia. And she came from a high-ranking Roman family, and she was married to a senator. But her and this Quintus Curious had an affair going. And I guess Fulvia had kind of tired of Quintus Curious, and he wasn't happy about this because I guess uh, they say his, his money had ran out, and then she wasn't interested in him anymore. And he started bragging about how he was going to be one of the top dogs in Rome. And he started becoming very overbearing to her and, you know, would brag about all these things coming to him. And she was like, what, you know, what is he talking about? What is any of this? Where is any of this coming from? So she started questioning him and finds out that he's involved in this plot with Catiline. And she finds out all she can. And then she goes to Cicero and tells him everything about it. And Cicero and her then convince Quintus Curious to kind of be like their inside man and inform them of the entire plot. So it's getting complex. It's like something out of a spy novel. So initially, Quintus Curious, he was involved in the... Who exactly did he know from the Catiline side? I don't know exactly who, but I know he was invited to join them and had been okay. attending their secret meetings. Okay. And then at one point, the conspirators plot to kill Cicero, but he's actually informed about it because of the spy network and is able to avoid the assassins and avoid being assassinated, which worked out well for him. But still, nobody's really believing that any of this is happening. And it's so, gotten to the point. Yeah, I mean, when you say he avoided being assassinated, was it like he just didn't go to certain places and so he, maybe there could have been something and it didn't happen because of that? Or was he? Did someone actually make an attempt, and he was he was prepared for it? I'm going to say this to the best of my memory. I don't, I don't know if it's exactly right. I don't want to make anything up, but I believe what happened was Catiline had said to two guys that were in on the conspiracy to go to Cicero's house, talk to him, try to draw him aside for a private conversation, and then take daggers and stab him to death. And Cicero had heard about this and basically, I think, locked up his whole house. Because usually, like, these politicians would have an open-door policy. And these two guys came up to the house and saw everything locked and they tried the door and couldn't get in and basically just gave up. <laughs> huh. But they did show up, it seems. So. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you would think – I guess it would be tough to convince people, though, that, you know, because some people knocked on your front door that they're trying to kill you, so – I could yeah. see how, especially, like you were just saying, it was common for people to come into your house and speak to you. So it'd be tough to, for Cicero to convince people that they were trying to murder him. Yeah, it seems like paranoia. And that's the issue with the whole conspiracy. I think Cicero, just because people were plotting against him doesn't mean Cicero wasn't paranoid. He was. He's not considered to be a man of action in Rome. He never liked the military. And, you know, he's basically yelling at the top of his lungs about some conspiracy 
And everybody just thinks, oh, that's just Cicero panicking. You know, he's just, he's not a man of action. He's afraid of everything. Ignore what he says. And, you know, at first people are, you know, asking for proof, but then it becomes almost ridicule and mocking of Cicero that he's just like, you know, some coward that's making up all these things to, you know, make himself look good. And because he's afraid of secret assassins. But then Cicero gets his trump card on October 18th. So remember the console election happened in September. Now we're mid-end of October. And somebody receives a mysterious letter in the middle of the night telling him to flee the city because a massacre of leading men would occur on October 29th. I'm sorry, October 28th. And that person who received that letter in, in the middle of the night was Crassus. And Crassus said the letter was delivered by an unknown man. Well, Crassus, he's the guy that remembers everybody's name, remember? You know, no matter how minor they are, he knows their name and greets them by name in the forum. So it seems somewhat unlikely that somebody just showed up on Crassus' door and delivered these letters to him. And why Crassus? A little bit odd, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and we were talking about before, I mean, he's pretty feared throughout Rome, so... Well, but then I guess that would make sense that they would warn him. They don't want to get on his bad side. They try to attempt something, but, but I mean, yeah, maybe he's it's a partisan scheme then. But it almost brings up the point: you wouldn't send those letters to anybody that had no involvement in the plot, right? Because what would be the point? Like, why take those letters to Crassus and not Cicero? So many people began to think, well, it was Crassus in on it this whole time. And then decided, hey, you know, this isn't going to work. This thing has no shot. And therefore turned in all the letters to screw over the other conspirators and clear his own name. Yeah, yeah, no, it could be that. Uh, so you're, you're saying that maybe that's not exactly what happened. Like, Crassus made up that it was just some stranger that came to his house. That it was it really could just, be. He, he got the letters because he was at the meetings. <laughs> Yeah, and, yeah, well, yeah. Not at the meetings himself, at least using proxies to know right. what was going on. Like, that's probably yeah. what he did is he had people that kept him abreast of what was going on and he did nothing to stop it, but did nothing to help it, maybe. Maybe he did help it. You know, he was funding Catiline the whole time. Catiline was basically his creature, you know, owed a lot to, to right. Crassus. So Crassus is not unbelievable that he might have had some involvement in it. But this, it's all guesswork. It's all hearsay. We have no idea if he did or not. We just know that he showed. He said that he had this package of letters delivered by a, a person he had never seen before in the middle of the night, and he brought it right to Cicero is what he said. Cicero takes it, and he reads it in the Senate. It's all about you know how they're going to assassinate all the leading men in the Senate and take over the city and, and light fires throughout the city and burn it while Catiline marches on the city with an army. And this wow. panic erupts in Rome. People just lose their minds about this because it went from like, oh, Cicero never shut up about these conspiracies that don't exist to this is real, you know, because now you have somebody like Crassus who was, as far as anybody knew, uninvolved and didn't have a horse in this, in this race one way or the other coming in and, and delivering proof of the plot. Like what does he have to gain from that? People felt. Of course, he might have to gain is that he was involved and trying to clear his name, but. Right. So, so is it. Catiline present at this moment? What happens? Catiline's still in Rome, and he's still going about his business like nothing's happening. And he's oh, trying wow. to act like above it, like this is all nonsense. And why? Because I'm not fleeing, therefore I have nothing to hide. If I asked me to hide, I'd be fleeing, right? 
So at this point, they don't know. Okay, I guess they're still not saying necessarily that this. They're not accusing uh, Catiline with this letter, or at least they don't. The letter doesn't say that Catiline's involved, but at this point, the Senate's just been persuaded that there is some kind of plot, but they're not necessarily uh, accusing him yet. Or I think that they're highly suspicious of him. I okay. just don't think that anybody's made the political move to really try to take him down yet. Okay. And they're just kind of you know taking a wait and see type atmosphere or type strategy. You know, it's definitely his name's coming up in a lot of this stuff, but, you know, nobody's quite sure what's true and what's not. Right. And then October 21st comes around, and Cicero brings more evidence, because one of the things the letter said is that, you know, an army in Etruria is gathering and will declare itself on whatever date, and that does happen. And they do declare themselves against Rome. And Cicero brings more evidence of this army growing in Etruria, and the Senate enacts the ultimate decree. You'll remember from that trial that Caesar did on the guy, uh, Riberius, the guy Riberius, with that ancient archaic trial where, you know, there's only two judges and it was Caesar and his cousin, and it was all about the Senate had enacted the ultimate decree to kill that person, Saturninus, and Caesar was trying to make the point that the ultimate decree's very dangerous, can be misused in many ways against citizens. Right. Okay, I was making sure you remember. Yeah, yeah. And it helps the audience remember, too. Yeah. So they, they enact that ultimate decree, which is supposed to be used, it's essentially martial law. It gives Cicero the power of the entire state. You know, he can, basically has the powers of life and death over any Roman citizens and can do much more than a normal consul ever could. And like I said, the army predicts or declares itself, but there is no massacre of leading citizens. So either that was never a real thing, or the people who were sort of carried out got cold feet when you know, it became public knowledge and decided not to do it. Now, at some point during this conspiracy, a lot of fathers discover that their sons are involved in this conspiracy. Because remember, Catiline focused his attention and his energies on the youth, and the youth followed him a lot, right? And yeah. so I'm going to read a quote from Rubicon, which is Tom Holland's book. Quote, Generational tensions were more than capable of setting father against son. One senator preferred to kill his heir rather than see him consorting with Catiline, despite the fact that like Calius, who's a, another character that we won't even get into, the young man had been outstandingly talented, well-read, and good-looking. So you have fathers killing their own sons rather than put up with them conspiring with Catiline. Or at least one father did that. So sometimes the Romans seem so similar to us and so relatable. And then you read about stories you know, about Catiline maiming people's faces and breaking their, ro- their arms with rods and, and their legs and whipping through the street and chopping off their heads. And, you know, this guy killing his own son, and you're like, whoa, that's different. That's not something I recognize. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's bizarre to even think, like, I wonder what the, how exactly this took place. Like, did the did the father himself kill the son, or did he have someone else do it for him? How did he, you know, did he did he just stab him, cut his head off? Or That's a good question. I don't know. That's a good question. And maybe it was something done out of, like, maybe they just had some, heated argument about you know just like any any father and son could have 
if uh, there's a lot of generational disagreements or the kids being rebellious or something. And then out of the, the heat of passion, he kills his son or is it like a, a measured thing like, you know, like a, a death sentence or something? I think it was more the, the second one, like a, a okay. measured death sentence. But I mean, we don't know for sure. I don't have any more details on it. That's all he says about it. But yeah, I just think that sometimes you read about the Romans, especially in the Republic, and they seem so similar to people to the, today that you can be fooled into thinking that they are more similar with us than they maybe really are. Because I think most people in at least modern Western societies, I don't think that they could really bring themselves to do the things that Catiline's doing or to kill your own son. Like It would take a heck of a lot to make somebody chop somebody's head off and wave it through the streets, right? That would be total anarchy. But these Romans can go from so civilized and they, but yet they have it in them to commit these atrocious acts of violence. You know, it, it's a weird dichotomy that they have both in them. They are civilized and they have all of these rules and culture and, and traditional methods that they go about things. And, you know, everything's about not you know being violent and holding things through the people and through the courts and, and through the Senate. But then suddenly they can just show this other side of them where they're incredibly violent. And, you, and typically they turn that violence on outsiders, on other nations and conquer them, but you know, occasionally it gets turned on itself as well. Yeah, yeah, I remember reading something that what well, I, I guess there's no I guess Romans that see human sacrifice as being some barbaric thing that only the some other foreigner like the Gauls or or someone some tribe does. But then uh, during the the triumphs, they'll what they'll kill the some of the slaves that they they gathered some of the like uh, or especially if there's a foreign king or something and strangle them to death in front of the the temples of uh, the temple of Apollo, which is basically a, a form of uh, I mean extreme violence to to strangle someone to death uh, within in front of a crowd. But uh, but yeah, definitely a lot of exceptions to to uh, their civ- more civilized culture. Yeah, it is funny. Like They did feel that they were much more civilized than the rest of the world, and they didn't seem to find any issue with you know the violence in their culture, but yet felt great in calling out the violence in other people's cultures. I think, like you said about the, the, the human sacrifices, it was always rumored and said that the Carthaginians, which was Hannibal's people, sacrificed kids on like mass scales. And the Romans thought that this was appalling, human sacrifice and sacrificing the kids like that. But like you said, the Romans weren't angels. They would have those triumphal parades and they would they would strangle a guy, you know, at the end, a, a foreign barbarian king. And, you know, they could be extremely brutal. So, I mean, it's kind of arbitrary what they decide is civilized and what is not. And, you know, they're just stubborn and believing that they're right. Now, getting back to the conspiracy at this time, there's armies waiting outside of Rome to triumph. So actually, a good segue there. They're waiting for their triumph at this point. And I forget who's triumph, but they're sitting there and waiting for the Senate to give them permission because they can't enter the city under arms. They can only enter the city on the day of their triumph. And then at the end, they lay down their arms and can enter the city as normal citizens. You can't enter as a armed soldier. So they're waiting to be let into the city for their triumph. And the Senate orders them to form up and go end this rebellion in Etruria. So they march out to go put that down. 
And at this point, Cicero finally feels that he has enough evidence to take down Catiline for good. And he essentially he launches, launches into a denunciation of Catiline, a prosecution in front of the whole Senate. And he accuses him of all the crimes, past and present. Character assassinates the hell out of him. Essentially, it's a, it's a well-laid-out prosecution that makes everybody turn on Catiline. It's, it's one of Cicero's masterpieces. Actually, there's a, a famous painting of it called The Denunciation of Catiline. You can look up. Actually, I have that picture, that, a big painting of that in my living room. It shows Cicero giving a speech, and all the senators have moved to the left side, and Catiline is sitting sullenly with his head down by himself, and nobody around him has ever been turned on him. I don't think it actually happened like that in the real history, but it's a cool picture. Oh yeah, yeah. I always thought that it that it was literal. Like everyone started to like gradually, you know, move away from until. But was that just you know part of the story? Because I was gonna say that's like a such a good story. It sounds you know almost too good. But is it is it too good to be true? Yeah, is I, that I not? Yeah. I don't think it actually happened that way. Um, okay. I've heard that story before, but I don't think it actually happened that way. Because I know that Catiline replies to Cicero during all this and basically just dismisses Cicero as a, as a naturalized alien, uh, <laughs> saying that he's not even a Roman, you know, and just does his best patrician contempt of this new man. But nevertheless, you know, even though he actually was unbothered by all of it, he ends up fleeing into exile that very night. And he claims it's to spare the Republic from internal conflict. But meanwhile, he runs straight to that army in Etruria. And he said he was going to exile in, uh, I think, Marseille in southern, what was today, southern France. But instead, he goes straight for that army. And Cicero claims this as his finest hour. And he finally drummed up, drummed Catiline out of the city. He's brought everybody's attention to this existential threat. And Catiline, he even gets him declared as a public enemy. And then finally, when Catiline flees, even Catullus turns on him. And Catiline writes a letter upon his fleeing to Catullus saying that his enemies have forced him into this, that he is innocent, that Cicero has pushed him into a corner and, and forced him to flee the city because, you know, everybody believes that he's guilty now. And he basically, and he entrusts his wife and kids to Catullus. But even Catullus, you know, leaves his side and, and doesn't believe in him anymore. Yeah, you you would think that Catullus, I'm surprised that he even stood by his side for as long as he did. I mean, be on the other side of the aisle or the other opposing party and all the other associations that Catiline had, you would have thought that uh, Catullus would have never stuck around as long as he did. Yeah, yeah, no, it is surprising. I think it's only because he was a patrician that he stuck around that long. I think had he been somebody of lesser ancestry, Catullus would have been gone. But then another bizarre thing happens, a delegation of Allobroges, which is a Gallic tribe from maybe southern France, northern Italy. They had been not doing so well under Roman rule. You know, the Romans aren't treating them so well, and they had sent a delegation to Rome to complain about it. And the conspirators approach these Gauls while they're in Rome and try to get them to join the conspiracy and rise up in Gaul at the same time that they rise up in Etruria, and then, you know, therefore distracting the Roman establishment from the other army. These Gauls say, screw that, we want nothing to do with this, and they go straight to Cicero and betray the conspirators. 
Cicero says, okay, okay, but like go along with it, right? And he tells the Alabroges, just pretend like you're going with these conspirators, and they leave in the middle of the night, I think crossing a bridge over the Tiber, and Cicero sets an ambush for them, and they end up capturing one of the conspirators in this ambush, and then the four other key members are arrested shortly after. And at first, these conspirators, they try to claim innocence, but the evidence is just overwhelming and damning against them. So soon they do all admit their guilt. But what do you do with these people? You know, they've admitted that they're trying to rise up and overthrow the government, that they have been involved in creating an army outside of Rome to march on Rome. They've you know, colluded to kill key mem- members of the government. But Rome has no jail. Rome has no prison system. It does have a, kind of a makeshift jail, but it's, it's not very secure. And these are all Roman senators or people high up in the Roman establishment. Can you just put them to death? You know, don't they have to go to trial? So that becomes a big debate. What do you do with these people? Rome had never experienced something like this before. Yeah, so I mean, what is it not like a standard practice? I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't you hold a trial for them? Or is that... So that's the thing. Some people say hold a trial for them. Some people say, no, the conspiracy is still ongoing. There's still an army in the field against Rome. These people need to die now. Okay, yeah. And there's yeah, a big I debate guess on that. At war, then you just kill them. You're not going to hold a trial for each person you kill at war. Yeah, plus they say, you know, there's martial law. The ultimate decree has been passed. You know, you have that's the ability right. to put them down. It becomes a whole debate, and that it's a debate in which Caesar stars in prominently. So we're going to end the talk of the conspiracy with that today, and then next episode we'll pick up where we left off and see, you know, what do they do with these conspirators, and what do they do with Catiline? Because Catiline's now at the head of an army in Etruria. He's, you know, presumably marching on Rome. You still have conspirators throughout the city that, you know, maybe they're not even aware of that could still be plant, plotting to rise up and kill many of the leading men. So the city's still in a panic. But we'll continue that next time on March of History.